0: Welcome to Solace Radio Streaming, Solace Radio Torah 101, and Solace Radio Broadcasting, now 24 hours a day online. We'd love to have you share, comment, and like our programming, it helps a lot. Also, to listen at home or in the office, just ask Siri, Alexa, or Google to play Solace Radio Streaming or play Solace Radio Torah 101. Your support is critical to our mission and channel. Please consider becoming a community patron. Any level of support is appreciated. Find us on Patreon. Or you can donate any amount at solaceradio.org. Enjoy the program's next. Shalom. Today we are talking about Antichrist. It seemed like a good idea because here we are teetering at the end of the age when The Antichrist is supposed to be revealed. And the Master warns us, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, which I take to be the Jewish people. And he says, Behold, I have told you in advance. He's told us in advance. It's Matthew 24, 24 through 25. And we read in the first epistle of John, we're told that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. And in the book of Revelation, we are warned that the whole world will go after this character, this false messiah, this false Christ, and those who refuse to do so will be singled out for persecution and martyrdom. So this is something that we should not only be vaguely aware of, But it's a subject in which we should all be well-versed. Every believer should be well-studied in this material because, according to the apostles, the global deception will be so powerful that even the elect are likely to be caught up in it and persuaded to cast their allegiance behind a false Christ. In today's day and age of instant communication and censorship and fake news and artificial intelligence and blind cult-like allegiance to political causes and to political personalities between the competing powers of nationalism and globalism, it takes no great leap of the imagination to see how the secular world could be quickly caught up in national deception and even global deception. As disciples of Yeshua, who are in possession of warnings about such a leader who will arise in the end of days, it's in our best interest to know the signs, to know what to look for, And know how to recognize the deceiver, lest we too be swept up in the deception. Today, I'm going to give you a portrait of the Antichrist. And when you see it, when you realize it, if you really understand it, it will wreck you. It's devastating. It's a shock to the system. You will no longer know what to believe. And your trust in authority is shattered. It's the proverbial red pill of the Matrix that sends you down Lewis Carroll's rabbit hole. You enter uncharted territory, falling off the edge of the map of the known world where one finds merely a notation scrawled in the margin that says, Here there be dragons. It knocks over your blocks overturns the tables, shatters the shell of Humpty Dumpty, and ultimately dispels the consensus reality of the religious world. And thereafter, you will find yourself as a theological and sociological outcast, persona non grata, a thorn in the side of the church and in the eyes of the synagogue, washed up like Robinson Crusoe with the other survivors of a shipwreck on the island of misfit toys. So shall we begin? The problem is I don't know where to begin. I don't even know where to start the conversation. It's such a big subject. I mean, there's a ton of material both inside the Bible and outside the Bible related to the subject. The history of the Jewish people in and around the 1st century is crowded with worthy candidates who were all vying for the position of being antichrist. This subject is a huge part of Jewish eschatology, closely entwined with the apocalyptic war of Gog and Magog that the Christians call Armageddon. And that's why I feel at a loss for where to start. But let's start in the book of Revelation. Let's start at the end, the book that's called The Apocalypse of John, where we read about a character called The Beast. Herein we are introduced to a world deceiver. He is called the Beast. That does not mean he is a beast. That's a cipher from the code language of the Apocalypses. In this case, the Beast is a code word for a Roman emperor like Nero, who is also called the Beast. In the book of Revelation, we see this Roman emperor type of character, this new Nero, invested with power from the dragon, the Satan, the spiritual force, behind the Roman Empire. And it says in the 13th chapter, Revelation 13.4, They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? The words, Who is like the beast?, are a mockery of the song at the sea when Moses says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Or in the Psalms when King David says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? They worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? The words, And who is able to wage war with him, allude to Roman military power. Read the speech that King Agrippa II makes to the people in Jerusalem, trying to dissuade them from rebelling against Rome. This is the argument he makes. No nation is able to wage war against Rome. He gives numerous examples of nations that have tried and failed. Then the passage goes on to say, It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation thirteen seven through 8 You know, on second thought, let's not start at the end. Let's not start there in Revelation. Let's start with something, something simpler. This idea of Antichrist comes from the general primordial soup of Jewish apocalyptic end-times expectation, and we find a healthy ladle of that same soup served up for us in the last chapter of the Didache, a chapter which scholars refer to as the Little Apocalypse. The Didache itself is a non-canonical collection of the teachings of Yeshua transmitted through the apostles to the Gentile disciples, and composed in the late 1st century or early 2nd century, it was supposed to be a basic primer on discipleship. At the end of the document, the last chapter offers a brief summary of the coming day of the Lord, as understood and taught in the eschatology of 1st century Jewish believers in Jesus. We get a little snapshot of what the late apostolic era community believed about the coming end of days. Note that it does not mention anything about a pre-trib rapture, or any rapture at all. But here's a short excerpt from that text. This is what the Didache says about Antichrist. Because of the increase of lawlessness, those who have fallen away will hate one another, and they will persecute one another, and they will even betray one another. And then the deceiver of the world will appear as a son of God. And he will perform signs and wonders. And the earth will be delivered into his power. And he will commit disgusting acts such as have never taken place since the beginning of time. Then the entire human race will enter the trial by fire and many will be caused to stumble and will perish but those who endure in faithfulness will be saved by the very one who is cursed deuteronomy 16 4 and 5 this passage from the Didiki expands upon and amplifies the Master's words in Matthew 24, 10-13, where it says, At that time many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved and that's the central message of all such apostolic warnings the point of the warning is not to give us a crystal ball to show us the future so that we can be like peeping toms peering through a window into the end of days but rather to remind us to stay faithful in the face of persecution tribulation and hardship yeshua says the one who endures to the end he will be saved think of how many people burn out drop out of the faith for this reason or that, for ridiculous reasons, for selfish reasons. And then I think, wow, we aren't even facing persecution yet. What will that look like? We find the same message over and over throughout the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, and all through the book of Revelation. The one who endures to the end receives the prize. Here in the Didache, the apostles make the message explicitly clear. They say in Didache 16.2, Your entire time of faithfulness will be of no benefit to you if you will not have been made complete at the end of time. So, this is a good place to start. We could start here in the Didache. But the more I think about it, it's not such a good place to start the conversation. So, let's not start here. Instead, we should look inside the New Testament to see the canonical view of the subject so, let's start in Second Thessalonians, where Paul describes the coming of the lawless one as a prerequisite to the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord. He says that the day of the Lord will not come, and the Messiah will not come until the lawless one has already come and led the world astray. So, here's the context for 2 Thessalonians. The disciples in Thessalonica received a report that the day of the Lord has already come. This is the first instance of what is called realized eschatology. It's the teaching that Yeshua's death and resurrection and ascension fulfilled the Bible's prophecies about the coming kingdom and the day of the Lord and that all of the expectations of Jewish eschatology have already been accomplished by him in some spiritual sense. According to realized eschatology, this is the kingdom. We are in it. Jesus fulfilled everything spiritually, when on the cross he said, It is finished. So now we just need to recognize it. That's not what we teach or believe. We believe in a literal future return of the Master, and a literal future kingdom on earth. The disciples in the city of Thessalonica have been told that there is no future coming kingdom and the day of the Lord because it's already here. This is what the majority of churches teach today. And the church has taught for most of the last 2,000 years. It's called amillennialism. According to this view, the church is the kingdom. And the kingdom is the church. Here's how Paul responds. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul corrects this mistaken notion that the kingdom might have already arrived. And how does he prove it? He states the day of the Lord cannot have already happened because the false Messiah is not here yet. The Antichrist isn't here yet. The great apostasy has not taken place yet. So he goes on, he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? This is the amazing thing to me. Paul was with these new believers in Thessalonica for only a few weeks, perhaps a few months, but while he was there, he was teaching them about Antichrist. That means that the warnings about Antichrist were among the top level things you had to teach new believers. He goes on, he says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 3 through 12 So what does he mean by unless the apostasy comes First, And what is meant by a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false? I have a disturbing suggestion. To get a big picture on this, maybe instead of starting here in Thessalonians, we should start in the third chapter of the apocryphal book titled Apocalypse of Elijah. Okay, it's not a book in the Bible. Most people have probably never heard of a book called The Apocalypse of Elijah. That's okay. There's no reason you should have. It's one of the weird and obscure writings from early believers that never made it into the New Testament. Scholars suggest that this short apocalypse was originally an older Jewish apocalypse, which Jewish believers in Jesus around the end of the first century or into the second century redacted with their own eschatology. And that could be the case. And that's what makes it so valuable, because it gives us another glimpse of what early Messianic Jews thought was going to happen in the end of days. I'm reading to you from the Apocalypse of Elijah. It says, The son of lawlessness will appear, saying, I am the Christ although he is not. Don't believe him. When the Christ comes, he will come in the manner of a covey of doves with the, crown of, with the crown of doves surrounding him. He will walk upon the heaven's vaults with the sign of the cross leading him. The whole world will behold him like the sun which shines from the eastern horizon to the western. This is how he will come with all his holy angels surrounding him. But the son of lawlessness, he will begin to stand again in the holy places. He will say to the sun, Fall, and it will fall. He will say, Shine, and it will shine. He will say, Darken, and it will do it. He will say to the moon, Become bloody, and it will do it. He will go forth with them from the sky. He will walk upon the sea and the rivers As upon dry land, he will cause the lame to walk. He will cause the deaf to hear. He will cause the dumb to speak. He will cause the blind to see. The lepers, he will cleanse. The ill, he will heal. And the demons, he will cast out. This is Apocalypse of Elijah. What's being described here in the Apocalypse of Elijah? Who does miracles like this? But don't forget, this is from the hand of early Jewish believers in Yeshua. It goes on and it says, He will multiply his signs and his wonders in the presence of everyone. He will do all the works which the Christ did, except for raising the dead alone. In this, you will know that he is the son of lawlessness because he is unable to give life. Apocalypse of Elijah. So according to this warning, the Antichrist is going to do the miracles of the Messiah. He's going to look to the world, not like a fearsome horned fiend such as Darth Maul or a shadowy cloaked figure, like Emperor Palpatine. He's going to look like Jesus. This is what some of the early Jewish believers were saying. And with that thought, I know exactly where we should have started this conversation. Let's look inside Deuteronomy 13. This well-known passage of the Torah warns against false prophets and enticers. I've spoken about it often enough in the past and written about it more than once in Torah Club commentaries. If you're not already familiar familiar with this passage, let me summarize it really quickly and spell out some of its implications. Essentially, it comes down to this. It's a warning against miracle-working prophets who turn Jewish people away from the Torah. Such a prophet, Moses says, must be regarded as a false prophet and put to death, even if the prophet performs signs and wonders and miracles, and even if he makes accurate predictions about the future. Such a prophet is to be deemed a false prophet. Moses says that if the prophet attempts to dissuade the Jewish people, quote, from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, unquote, you are to disregard that prophet as a false prophet. Okay, the way in which the Lord your God commanded the Jewish people to walk is the Torah and the commandments. Moses warns the Jewish people not to listen to such a prophet, even if he offers amazing signs and wonders to validate his message. Instead, the Jewish people are to follow the Lord, keep his commandments, listen to his voice. Deuteronomy 13.4 This means that anyone claiming to speak on God's behalf who also declares that the Torah has been cancelled or that the Jewish people no longer need to observe the Torah, any such person must be considered a false prophet, even if he performs signs and wonders. Instead, the false prophet is to be put to death. If he performs miracles, signs, and wonders, or if he makes accurate predictions about the future, that's only more evidence that he is a false prophet. Specifically, the passage focuses in on a false prophet who entices the people into idolatry or into the worship of other gods. And it goes on to warn that anyone who tries to entice the Jewish people to worship other gods must be considered an enticer and also put to death, just like the false prophet. Even if this person is a member of your own family, it's, it's, it's your parents, it's your children, it's your spouse. This is a sobering and serious concern in the Torah. According to this rule, if a Jewish man's wife said to him, let's go worship other gods, he's supposed to turn her over to the court of law and have her prosecuted as an enticer. Deuteronomy 13 and the laws of the false prophet and the laws of the enticer explain the situation that we find ourselves in Today, this explains why the Jewish people cannot accept the claims of Christianity. It explains why missionaries to the Jewish people are so hated and reviled, especially Jewish missionaries to the Jewish people. Because Christianity comes preaching to the Jewish people, saying, Jesus performed miracles to prove who he is. He sets you free from the law. Turn aside from the Torah now and receive him and worship him. As another God. Okay, even if that's not exactly how the message is framed in Jewish evangelism today, that's how it sounds to the Jewish people. And this explains why Messianic Jewish Rabbi Mark Kinzer says the Jewish no to Jesus is a yes to God. In other words, When understood in the context of Deuteronomy 13, the rejection of a so-called Messiah who works miracles, signs, and wonders while turning people away from the Torah is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to reject such a person. It's a mitzvah for a Jewish person. I hasten to add that this is also the reason that we are here today in a Messianic Jewish synagogue. And if you are like me, at some point in your journey... And out of your love for God and for his Messiah and and for the scriptures, you realized that the Jesus of replacement theology and Christian supersessionism is a false prophet, is an enticer and a false Messiah, a false Christ. That is to say, the Jesus that canceled the law, the Jesus that abolished the Torah, the Jesus who discarded the Sabbath and taught others to do so as well, The Jesus who changed the holy day to the first day of the week. The Jesus that tore down the distinction between Jewish and Gentile identity. The Jesus whose death replaced the Levitical service. The Jesus who declared forbidden foods to be clean and and kosher for Jews to eat. The Jesus who taught the Jewish people not to worship the one God alone, but to worship him in God's place the Jesus who exchanged Israel for the church and traded the Jewish people for Gentile Christians, replacing Judaism with Christianity. This guy, there can be no shadow of a doubt that this person fits the profile of the false prophet described in Deuteronomy 13. And if that's the case, then all of his apostles and disciples and missionaries and evangelists then fit the profile of the enticer subsequently described in Deuteronomy 13. Having come to this realization, I turned back to the New Testament to see if it was true. Did Jesus abolish the Torah and Judaism as replacement theology insists? Because if he did, then according to the Bible, we are disciples of the false Messiah, disciples of Antichrist, so to speak. When did this realization hit you between the eyes? Or has it ever? I'll tell you, it first began to dawn on me in 1994 or 1995 when I first started studying Torah at a Messianic congregation, and it toppled my world. But it drove me to investigate. It compelled me to learn the truth and understand the truth about the New Testament. I read through the New Testament, and I couldn't reconcile it to the Torah. I just couldn't do it. But I persisted in it because one thing seemed clear. Yeshua of Nazareth had been framed, slandered, and libeled by those who professed to be his own followers because he stated in no uncertain terms that we should never allow ourselves to even think that he had come to abolish the Torah. Not a single jot or tittle. Not a single commandment. And he taught his disciples to keep even the least of the commandments of the Torah and even to obey the words of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Jewish authorities who occupied the seat of Moses in authority over the Jewish people and religion. This Jesus... Was just the opposite of the Jesus that I had learned in the church. They have eyes, they do not see. Though they have ears, they do not hear. But to you have been granted the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them. Seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. Because Yeshua's message fell on the road, and the birds of the air came and snatched it away. It fell on shallow soil, and it did not take root. It fell among the weeds, and the weeds grew up and choked it out. So claiming to be wise, they became fools and cast their allegiance with Antichrist. Such is the power of the illusion and the power of deception, which is called the spirit of lawlessness. That is not to say that Christians follow Antichrist. If there is a spiritual blindness in place, it's safe to assume that it's there because God has closed the eyes of his people just as he closed the eyes of Israel until the culmination of time. But here's the point we need to be clear on. The theological and ideological description of the Christ revered by the church matches that of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of lawlessness. And that is the deception. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work, and the replacement theology of the church is preparing the way for Antichrist just as surely as John the Immerser prepared the way in the wilderness for the true Messiah. So what happens when God opens your eyes and opens your ears to this truth? When you see it, when you understand it, it wrecks you for the church. You feel like an old wineskin filled with new wine, bursting at the seams. You feel like an old garment patched with unshrunk cloth. Because it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is to shake off replacement theology sufficiently to see the true Yeshua, hear His message, and understand it. And I had no idea what to do with that information. I looked for teachers but found few. I looked to Messianic Judaism for help in unraveling this problem, but I found that most of Messianic Judaism and most Messianic Jewish leaders also believed and taught replacement theology and the cancellation of the Torah. And they offered no direction for a Gentile except to send me back to the church. But as I said, I was wrecked for the teaching in the church. And all of this is to say nothing of the chaos and confusion and complexity I faced when trying to reconcile the writings of Paul. The journey took decades, and we appeared to be wandering, shut in by the wilderness, but the redemption was yet to come. By God's grace, he sent a strong east wind, a ruach from Hashem, that split the sea of confusion, making a distinction between slave and free, between male and female between Jew and Gentile, separating one thing from another, like the spirit of Bina separating between things, and distinguishing between Jew and Gentile, like a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left, until solid ground appeared beneath our feet and we could safely cross the theological Red Sea on dry ground to stand on the other side while behind us the Antichrist and his chariots of replacement theology sank like stones in the water and the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Then it was time for the song at the sea when we exclaim, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? By God's grace... I testify by my soul in full confidence to declare that the real Yeshua of Nazareth, depicted in the Gospels and Epistles of the New Testament, is surely the Messiah promised to Israel. He is the Redeemer, the one destined to slay the lawless one with the breath of his mouth, to take his seat upon David's throne, to judge between the nations, to awaken the dead, and to judge the secrets of men. He is no false prophet, no enticer or deceiver, nor were his first disciples and apostles. They did not teach any cancellation of the Torah or replacement or diminishment of the religion of Israel. Instead, they called for the Jewish people to return in repentance to the Torah, its commandments, and the religion of Israel in anticipation of the end of the age and the fearsome judgment of the Son of Man. And that's where we need to begin the conversation about Antichrist. But having begun, I don't know where to end. Unless it's here at the end of the didiki, with a message made the more urgent as we now teeter on the end of the age. Be vigilant for your life. Do not let your lamps be snuffed out. And do not let your loins be ungirded, but be ready, for you do not know the hour in which our Lord is coming. Gather together often, seeking what is appropriate for your lives, because your entire time of faithfulness will be of no benefit to you if you will not have been made complete at the end of time. Take my yoke.